joining us. Uh, last week we spoke about um, Melech Menashe, uh, one of the wicked kings of, uh, of Yehuda. Uh, there were many wicked kings of Yehuda and Yisrael. Yisrael, of course, being the breakaway uh, kingdom from the north that started in earnest after the split of the kingdom during the days of Rechavam and Yeravam. And Menashe, uh, we saw, is a rather complicated figure, at least in his treatment by Chazal, how Chazal treated him, um, that he was somebody that uh, ostensibly seemed to have done some degree of tshuva in the past. Uh, and and when, he, and he, when he did that tshuva, when he called out to God, as the Gemara in Yushami tells us, he was returned back to the seat of his throne. So the problem is, is that um, Menashe still gets called a wicked king, uh, despite our assessment of his character by Chazal. He still gets called a wicked king because at the end of the day, Chazal point out that even if Menashe did do tshuva, his tshuva was only a personal tshuva. He was not able to move anybody else to go ahead and to do tshuva. He wasn't able to cause the nation to repent, and therefore he's sealed in history as being a, a king that was wicked and did harab ene Hashem. We're going to see a very different king tonight, and that's Menashe's grandson. Menashe's grandson is Yoshiyahu HaMelech, and Yoshiyahu HaMelech is an extraordinarily fascinating character, uh, extraordinarily tragic character in Jewish history, in the history of the kings, uh, especially so. Let's take a look at some of our sources, and we'll be able to gain some perspective on uh, really setting the scene, or setting the uh, setting the setting the table for for Yirmiyahu, for the Navi Yirmiyahu to emerge on the scene. And it's so important to learn this because it really, uh, it really allows us to understand what context, right? Of course, a Navi prophecies uh, according to their time, according to the experiences and the political events of their time. But a Navi uh, also is a Nevuah Shehutzer Chalidorus, and that's why it's written down. So even though we're talking about a specific context in the 6th century of before the Common Era, uh, again, these are things, the vicissitudes of the Malchus, and how the kings fell in and out of favor with God Almighty, how that was uh, reverberates deeply into our days. So we ended off a we pointed out, uh, one of our listeners last week pointed out that Menashe was not born in the, in the family burial plot of the kings of Judah. Rather, Menashe was buried, Menashe was buried in his own garden. And his son Amon, Melech Amon, became king underneath him. Now, if you haven't heard so much about Amon, that would be okay because he's given short shrift uh, in, the, in the Tanakh. And this is coming now from Sefer Melachim Bet, Perach of Aleph, chapter 21, into chapter 22. Who was Melech Amon? Ben Esrim Veshtaim Shana Amon B'Malcho. Amon was 22 years old when he became ruler. Ushtaim Shani Malach B'Yerushalayim. He only ruled for two years in Yerushalayim. Shemi Momishulemes Pascharos Min Yatva. So that is about all we know about Amon, except his end is kind of an interesting one because there's a little bit of an insurgency. Amon is the son of Menashe, continues to do wicked in the eyes of God. And we talked about the wicked things, uh, the wicked games that Menashe played, that he would install idolatry, that he would install uh, all sorts of ritual cultic objects in the temple, uh, perpetuated the spread of Avodazar idolatry, and really reversed all the reforms of his father and predecessors of uh, Chizkiyahu Amelech. 
But Amon goes and follows directly in his son's path, as in his father's path. So he basically follows, he's a carbon copy of his father. Amon follows everything that his father does, goes directly in that path. And he bows down to idols, he does everything that his father does. Did not follow in the ways of Hashem. And his servants uh, seemingly had had enough of him. So the servants, uh, they tied Amon up and they murdered him. They killed him. They killed the king. And then there was a counterinsurgency. And the counterinsurgency in Pasuk Chavdalit, verse 24, and the hoi poloi, the masses, the mob of the people, they in turn went ahead and killed the Koshrim, killed the people who had murdered the king. And they appointed his son, Yoshiahu, as king in his place. So again, we have, going back a few generations already, we have Chizkiyahu HaMelech who attempts to uh, revive uh, religion, who attempts to reform people's ways. We have Menashe, his son, who rules for an extraordinarily long time that so deeply allows idolatry to seep into the land. And then we have his son, Amon, who rules only for two years, is murdered by an insurgency. There's a counterinsurgency which murders them. And now we enter into Yoshiao HaMelech. And Yoshiao HaMelech is going to be our hero, for this time, Yoshio Amelch is going to be the main king associated with the Nivuot of Yermiahu Hanavi. Uh, Yoshiao and Yermiahu, in a sense, uh, partnered together. There were two other prophets, as we'll see, uh, that prophesied during the time, three other prophets, really, that prophesied during the time of uh, Yermiahu. The first of them was Chulda Hanivi'ah. Chulda was one of the seven female prophets and one of only three prophets uh, described as such. Three prophetesses described as such in the Torah, uh, Miriam, Dvorah, and Chulda. Another prophet was Tsefania, who apparently would, uh, whose prophecies are written in Treasar, but Tsefania would prophesy to the um, to the people in the shoals. And then we also know that Yecheskel Hanavi is slightly contemporaneous uh, at some points of his life together with together with Yirmiyahu. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll see that Yirmiyahu and Yecheskel's jobs are quite different. That Yecheskel already starts to prophesy in terms of Nechama, in terms of comfort. Uh, whereas Chazal tell us that Yirmiyahu is a Navi, is Kula Churbana. He's all destruction. So Yirmiyahu uh, Hanavi's Melech, the king who is most closely associated with him, is the son of Amon. Ben Shmona Shana Yoshiahu Bemalko, Vishloshin Vaacha Shana Malach Bishalain. Yoshiahu Hamelch ascended the throne at the tender age of eight. And just to put that in perspective, I looked at my daughter today, who is eight years old, and I was uh, wondering what it would be like if she was the queen of Israel. But he was eight years old when he was installed. Obviously, he was a Yanuka. Uh, he was a young lad when he was placed in, and he's described as such as a Na'ar, uh, similar to Yosef Hatzadik, described as a Na'ar. Yoshiahu HaMelech ruled for 32 years. He had a, a very long uh, reign as king. So finally, we could take a deep breath and we find the king that is doing the right 
and the true and honest in God's eyes, although we'll see that Yoshiao HaMelech is not immune, is not immune to the failings of kings, is not immune to the hubris of the kings of Yehuda and Yisrael, and ultimately that hubris ends up being his downfall, his very tragic downfall, which we are going to, uh, which we're hopefully going to uh, see a little bit. Maybe we'll touch upon it today. He did that which was upright in the eyes of God. I'm just highlighting where we are so people can see. We find this, this is a really important pasuk over here, because no other king in the entire lineage of Davidic kings, I believe I'm correct on this, no other king in the lineage of Jewish kings is referenced as being a king in the eyes of David Aviv. And we'll see that Yirmiyahu, that Yirmiyahu HaMelech writes this as well in Sefer Yirmiyahu. It's written in Sefer Divrei HaYamim that Yoshiyahu HaMelech is associated directly with being from the Davidic line, with being from the house of David. So finally, we see what amounts to a continuation, the long-hoped-for continuation of the Davidic throne, that there's finally a descendant to David HaMelech who's following along in his great ancestors' ways. In the 18th year of his reign, in the, sorry, when he was 18 years old, Shalach HaMelech HaShafan Ben Atzal Yahu Ben Mishulam HaSofer Beis Hashem Leymar. So Yoshiao HaMelech is having a religious awakening of sorts, and he sends Shafan Ben Atzal Yahu, who is one of the main scribes of the king, he sends him to the neglected Beit HaMikdash, far more than neglected, the Beit HaMikdash, which had been ransacked and defiled by the two previous kings. Aleil Chilkiyahu HaKohen, Go up to Chilkiyahu, who was the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. I want you to gather all the money that was taken in temple taxes and levies. So here we have the stage set. I'm just going to stop the share for a second. The stage is now set for the religious reawakening instituted by Yoshiao HaMelech. Yoshiao HaMelech sees everything that's happened for the generations before him, and he has had enough. He sees and recognizes that there is an aspect of, of, of Jewish life, of national life, that is totally missing. And there's going to be, uh, the chain of events is going to lead inexorably to a somewhat miraculous event, an event that's going to be termed as another Kresas Bris, another forging of the covenant between the Jewish people and God, after it having been almost severed uh, for so long during the days of Melech Menashe and his son Amon. And that in a certain sense, Yoshiao HaMelech is seen as being a scion of the house of King David because he's following also in the ways and the reforms that Chizkiyahu HaMelech tried to do as well two generations prior, his great-grandfather. So he's going to go in earnest and what he's doing now is he's saying we have all this money in our temple coffers. The money should be used for something called Bedek HaBayis. Bedek HaBayis is that we're going to literally check out the temple. We're going to rededicate the temple. We're going to see what's missing. We're going to take stock. We're going to, uh, we're going to improve and hopefully clean it out from everything that's been done to it in this time. So here the stage is set for the miraculous discovery that happens when he sends these people, when he sends Shafan, where were they? When he sends uh, Shafan ben Atzal Yahu, 
Techilkiyawa uh, Kohen. And it goes like this. This is again, we're jumping in between now from Malachim to a, a, a description from Divrei Hayamim from Chronicles as well, where it's a little bit more uh, descriptive. But again, we see this epithet that I mentioned before. In the eighth year of his reign, so he is still a lad. So Yoshiao HaMelech, this is even before he commands people to, in, to rededicate, or to, not to rededicate, but to clean out the temple, we find that he already had a, a tingling, he already had an, a, a sense inside of seeking out God. He was a seeker, and he wanted to do tshuva, and again we find him described, Lidrosh Le'eloke David Aviv, to seek out the God of David his father. And he begins a campaign. He begins a campaign throughout all the land of Israel to clear it out of all of the idols, of all of the foreign worship, of all of the Asherahs, all of the Bamos, all of the accoutrements of Avodazara that were set up by his predecessors and so entrenched in the land by Menashe. And this is what this is what Yoshiyahu sees as his job. Just an amazing thing is that we find figures over here that are substantiated in archaeological findings as well. I just wanted to show you two blockbuster findings. Chilkiyahu uh, ben Shalom is the one who found the Sefer Torah, uh, which is what we're going to see next. After they went to clean out the temple, Chilkiyahu ben Shalom finds uh, a, a Torah scroll. And Yoshio's reformations begin in earnest. On the seal to the left over here, found in the Ir David excavations in Yerushalayim, it's written to Azariah bin Chilkiyahu. And it's dated back that this is ostensibly a son of the Chilkiyahu HaKohen, Chilkiyahu the high priest that's mentioned over here, Chilkiyahu HaKohen Gadol. And then we also find Gemariyahu ben Shafan. Gemariyahu ben Shafan, we don't even have to surmise, right? We have Shafan HaSofer over here, right? And we also find that, his, that Gemariyahu ben Shafan is mentioned over here in Sefer Yirmiyahu. So this is, that is Gemariyahu ben Shafan in Sefer Yirmiyahu. And that is Gemariyahu ben Shafan. I can't read uh, ancient uh, Israelite writing, but this is the ancient Israelite writing. And uh, this is a, a seal ascribed to Gemariyahu ben Shafan. Two finds, two blockbuster finds of characters that are uh, ones that we're learning about here that we have just mentioned. So, Vayaged Shafan asofer lemelech. So Shafan, who was sent over, there's those two, uh, those two seals on top over here. Vayaged Shafan asofer. Shafan asofer told the king, Lemor Sefer Natan li chilkiyahu akoin v'ikra'eu Shafan l'fnei ha-melech. When they had gone into the temple, they discovered uh, they found a Sefer Habris, the Book of the Covenant. Now there's some discussion as to what exactly this, this uh, Book of the Covenant was. There's discussions in Mesechet Sanhedrin of whether or not they found an entire Torah scroll or they found just Sefer Divrei Habris, which might be a reference to, uh, to just Deuteronomy. And this is what led to Bible scholars to call the reforms of Yoshiyahu HaMelech the Deuteronic Revival. There's a name. Uh, that would be like a cool band name, the Deuter- Deuteronomic Revival. And this is what happens. They found, Shafan tells the king, look, we found a Torah scroll. We found a Torah scroll in the temple. And Chilkiyahu HaKohen opened it up and read it before the king. Now imagine, he's already begun his reforms 
in earnest, these religious reforms. They've sent people to go and to clear out the temple, to do the Bede Kabayit that's been long overdue. And they find the Torah scroll there, and they read the Torah scroll to Yoshiao HaMelech. Now imagine how jarring this must be. Vayihi Kishmoa HaMelech is Divrei Sefer HaTorah. When he heard the words of the Torah being read, Vayikra'at Bigadav, he tore and rent his garments. Vayitzav HaMelech is Chilkiah HaKohen ve'es Achikam ben Shafan, so he, Yoshio tells all the men who were involved in this Bede Kabayis process, who were involved in everything here, he tells them the following. He says, this is a sign. This, we have to act upon this. It's not for naught that we discovered a Sefer Torah. It wasn't some accident that we discovered this Torah scroll while engaged in this, in this religious revival and this work of cleaning out the temple. God is communicating something to us. He says, Lichu, we have to find out what God wants from us over here. Lichu dirshuas Hashem ba'adi. Go seek out Hashem for me, which means go see a prophet. For the whole nation, for all of Judah, it is clear that God's anger is very, very strong against us. Now, it, it is part of the speculation as to what the Sefer they found was. If it was indeed just the Sefer Advarim, it's possible that they opened it up to the Tochacha, the Tochacha, the admonition from God to the Jewish people, which is rife with detailing what will happen to a Jewish people. Terrible, terrible things will happen to a Jewish people, which unfortunately did happen. But these terrible things happen uh, in the wake of exactly the things that they're doing right then. That's why it's so jarring. It's not just that they find the Sefer Torah. It's that the Sefer Torah is speaking exactly to them. The Sefer Torah, it's, the Sefer Torah is describing the institution of idolatry. It's describing uh, in the Tochacha the stuff that Menashe does, the stuff that Ammon does, the stuff that the people are doing in the land, the homage that they're paying to their Assyrian overlords in the north, and they correct directly identify that when you open up this Sefer HaTorah to the Tochacha and it describes really these terrible punishments for the people, it is eminently clear that this Torah is talking to them and that this is not Stam, that this is not some sort of a happenstance and therefore, uh, therefore, the king tells them, Yoshiao Amal says, Lichu dirshu es Hashem ba'adi, va'ad kol am va'ad kol yudah, divrei sefer anim tzazeh, it's clear, ki gedol l'cham as Hashem, it's clear that Hashem is angry at us. Asher yinitzta banu el asher lo shamu avoseinu al divrei asefer azel asos kichol akosav elenu. It's clear that we didn't do everything that God had admonished and enjoined us to do that's written in this book. And here we have Vayele Chilkiyahu Hakohen Vachikam Vachbar Veshafan Vasayel Chulda Hanivia. So they all walk towards Chulda Hanivia. Chulda Hanivia. It says here, Eisa Shalom Shalom Ben Tikva Ben Charchas Shomer Abigadvi Yoshevus Yushalayim Mishne VeYidabro Aleh. So let's pause here for a second and talk about the figure of Chulda. So the first question, and you'll, I'll apologize for this question. We mentioned that Chulda is one of the seven traditional prophetesses, seven women that are described as being prophets, and one of only three women that actually have the epithet 
of Navi or Neviyah right next to her. That's Chulda. Chulda is active during the time of Yirmiyahu, and it's also clear that she was somebody that was well-known enough that the king would send after this amazing discovery, would immediately send all of his men to go speak to her. Now, a question that arises, and this might not be our question, a question that arises would be, why send to Chulda, who seems to be, really is only mentioned twice in Tanakh, and is not really given that much shrift in Tanakh. We don't really hear so much from Chulda. We are going to hear this prophecy in a moment that she responds to these people as to the import of finding the Sefer Torah. But it's not quite clear. I mean, if you have a Yirmiyahu Hanavi, and I'll apologize for the question because it's really not a male-female thing. It's not just because she's a Neviyah, but really it's the extent of saying here we have a major prophet, Yirmiyahu, and we have a rather minor prophet, uh, prophet still, but... But, but why send to her? And, and furthermore, maybe there's a problem with that. We know, like, for example, learning Torah. So, you know, if Rabbi Robinson's around and he's the senior rabbi, if somebody asks me a question, I, I demur because the Marad Asra is there. I'm not supposed to answer in place of the Marad Asra. Same thing like a Talmud that answers before his Rav. That was actually seen as one of the sins of Nadav and Avihu, that they were Mora Halacha Bifnei Rabbam, that they taught Halacha in the face of their teachers. It's not a good thing. So if I have a greater prophet around, so is Yoshio doing the right thing by sending everybody to Chulda Hanivyah? Is that the proper way to go ahead and do that? Shouldn't we go to the senior prophet, the, you know, the, the Marad Asra in terms of Nivuah? So that's a question. There's a few answers offered in the Gemara Megillah and Daf Yudalit Bez. I'm just going to mention one or two of them, and I want to show you the way that Chazal describe Chulda Hanivyah as well. The first way in which we might see uh, a reason that they went to Chulda first so they tell us that because they understood that only a woman, only a mother, would have the mercy to understand that these broken children are coming before her and that they're absolutely shattered and that they need something to strengthen them. So they're looking for Rahmanas, they're looking for mercy, which they would, it's a stereotype to be sure, that they stereotypically felt that they would find in Chulda HaNeviyah, who had a degree of Rachamim. Rachamim, of course, is a, a female category. Rachamim, of course, is from the word Rechem, from the word womb. So Rachamim is, is given this sort of feminine uh, feminine uh, valence, and that's maybe one reason. Another reason is that Chulda was a cousin of Yirmiyahu Hanavi, and therefore she they didn't they knew that Yirmiyahu wouldn't be makpit, that Yirmiyahu wouldn't be strict about his prophetic turf when it came to uh, when it came to giving out to doling out prophecy. Be that as it may, Chulda's prophecy is is a is a nivuav zam. It is not a, a, an ultimately comforting prophecy. Chulda Hanivia's prophecy is a very angry prophecy. She basically tells them, yeah, everything that's happening in that Sefer Habris, everything that's happening in that Torah is going to happen to you as well. However, at least it won't happen during the lifetime of Melech Yoshiahu. That's, it's going to be delayed. It's not going to happen. Yoshiao, it's almost as if she's saying Yoshiao's reforms are only going to stave off the ultimate destruction for some time, but they still, they've been so ingrained, so entrenched that it's still going to happen. Now, we know that even if you receive a prophecy like that, we know that you still continue to do what you're doing. You continue to do the right thing. The prophecy doesn't free you up from that and that you are able to change God's mind for the better. Even though it's written and sealed that this is the prophecy of destruction, 
destruction, this is the nivuat za'am, uh, it's po- possible through acts of tshuva to try and to repair that. That's possible too. Um, and that's why they continue. They're not demoralized by Chulda's prophecy, but it is a difficult prophecy nonetheless. It's something that's very painful for them to hear. I just want to show you a really extraordinary Rashi, which tells us a little bit about Chulda's vocation. Um, if you look over here, Ayn Rashi al-Malata, Rashi quotes Chazal to speak about the greatness of Chulda and why they sent to her and not Yermiyahu. We just mentioned that uh, that's a Megillah Yedal and Rambez. El Chulda Hanviya, Rabbateinu Darshu. Rashi says, our rabbis explain, The woman is stereotypically more merciful. Whether or not that's uh, necessarily true, uh, I think is a different discussion for us. Um, we could talk about gender roles in Judaism in a different place, but that was certainly the stereotype, and I would say certainly a stereotype that exists or persists to this very day. It was almost as they were afraid of what Yirmiyahu would say uh, to this find. But interesting, what about Chulda's vocation? So it turns out that Chulda, and uh, now you have another character that you could gesture to, you know, you don't always have to, uh, you know, there are many great uh, women, Dayanim, uh, not many, I shouldn't lie, but there certainly are great women Torah leaders in Jewish history, and Chulda was no different as a Torah leader. Listen to what Rashi describes Chulda's vocation as Yoshevip Yerushalayim B'Mishneh. Chulda was sitting over here, she would sit in Yerushalayim B'Mishneh. So what is that talking about? What, where was she sitting? What was the Mishnah that she was sitting? What was she doing? So she says, There were two walls to the city in Yerushalayim. She would sit in between those two walls. And she had a Beit Medrash. Perush, b'makom Torah. She would dwell in the place of Torah. Ki lishka achas haisala lechulda smucha lishkat hagazit. Lishkat chulda haisa pesucha lachutz vestuma klap v'sanhedrin. Now that's incredible, right? If you know anything about the Temple Mount, so the way that the Temple Mount works is that there is the Beit Hamikdash, and right on the side, out, right just outside the Beit Hamikdash, was something called the lishkat hagazit was the chamber of hewn stone. And in the Lishkar HaGazit, the Sanhedrin would sit in a semicircle, the great Sanhedrin. So that was the highest court of the land. It sounds like there was also, what Rashi is describing, that right adjacent to the Lishkat HaSanhedrin, to Lishkar HaGazit, there was a room called Lishkat Cholta. And she would sit there and she would teach Torah and she would adjudicate uh, halacha cases and Torah cases. That was Chulda's job. And you could go and you could seek her out because she was also a prophetess. That's the figure of Chulda. We're clearly dealing with somebody at the very highest rungs of Avodat Hashem. So they would have the they would have you know Chulda's own office and then they would have the office of the Sanhedrin as well. Very, very fascinating. Yoshevet, they called it Lishkat Chulda. They called it Lishkat Chulda. So that was Chulda Hanaviyah and Ve'idabro Eleha. And they give, uh, Chulda gives a, 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 a Nivuat Zam. She tells them that, that these destructive forces are going to eventually befall the people. 
However, it's not going to happen during the lifetime. It's not going to happen during the reign of Yoshiah HaMelech. Just a little bit more, and we'll wrap up for today. We're going to get to this much later, and I'm going to explain who Baruch is, um, who exactly Baruch, Baruch Ben Neria, who exactly it is. He's the author of Megillat Eicha, and he was the right-hand man of Yermiyahu, but Gemariyahu Ben Shafan is over here. We have over here Gemariyahu Ben Shafan, uh, two psukim which mention this uh, individual and the seal which was discovered with his name on it, the archaeological substantiation uh, to this figure having lived, uh, having been a real person and having had his own seal. And that's the kind of uh, figures that we're talking about. Okay, so Yermiyahu, uh, Yermiyahu begins to prophecy during the 13th year of Yoshiyahu's reign. So Yoshiyahu's already started. He's already begun his tshuva. Um, he's already become his tshuva process. And Yermiyahu is on the scene as well and begins to prophesy in Anatot, outside of Yerushalayim, in the Chevel Binyamin. And Yoshiyahu's tshuva reform is in full swing. And then we reach tragedy. So Yoshiyahu HaMelech, I always tell the story, I'm going to tell the story outside so that everybody can see me, and then we're going to look at it in the Psukim. The way that the story is described invariably in the Kinos, or if you look in the Koran Kinos or the Art Scroll Kinos, the story is as following. Yoshiyahu HaMelech Asa Esatov Be'inei Hashem, he was Yasha Be'inei Hashem, he was good and kind and followed in the ways of God and wanted to reform the terrible things that his father and grandfather had done. He... After, discover, after discovering this Torah scroll and the terrible future that it, uh, the, the terrible future that it augured for the Jewish people, so Yoshio HaMelech sends out guards, and these guards were expressly charged with uprooting all of the Avodazara, all of the all of the foreign uh, idol worship and and, uh, and bamot that had been established, and really to cleanse the Taher, to cleanse the entire land of this idolatry. The way that the story goes, or at least the way that's described in the Kina, is that Yoshiyahu HaMelech was having some great success. The nation was going through a tshuva movement, unlike that, the likes of which had never been seen before. And the people, unfortunately, in certain pockets of resistance, were still so connected, still so aduk, still so addicted to their avodazara that they even devised new ways in which they would preserve their avodazara from the prying eyes of Yoshiao HaMelech's guards. What were the things that they did? So it's described in the Midrashim, in Midrash Eicha, that what they would do is that they would split their idols in half. They would have one half of the idol on one side of the door, one half of the idol on the other side of the door. When the doors were closed, so then the idols would come together and you'd be able to worship it. And when the doors were opened, as in when, uh, when one of the guards of the king seeking out idols would come in, the idols would be split in half. Yoshio HaMelech was so convinced that his tshuva movement was being strong and that his tshuva movement was being successful, that Yoshio HaMelech uh, felt that the time had come that the geopolitics of the land of Israel needed to be reassessed. Remember, the northern kingdom, as we described, has been previously exiled. The ten tribes have been exiled by Sancheirib, the king of Assyria. And Assyria rules over the north 
of the land of Israel uh, with a kind of hegemony and it's backwater, an Assyrian backwater, uh, Samaria. And the other regional power is the forces of Egypt. And the, the pharaoh of Egypt at the time was Paro Necho. Uh, there's two Paro Nechos. This seems to be the second one. Paro Necho is going to wage battle against Assyria. And in order to do so, he has to come up through the plains, uh, the coastal plains, and he has to make his way across Samaria to do battle, uh, across the Galil, really, to do battle with Assyria. And he has no quarrel with Israel. He has no quarrel with us. You know, Yehuda is now really the only pocket of the kingship left, and Assyria is mostly, um, you know, it's, it's again, it's an, uh, Samaria is an Assyrian backwater. And they, they've adopted Assyrian ways, that's all they do. And Paranacho simply wants to pass forth with his expeditionary force into that land. And the problem with that is, is that the Torah tells us, we have a prophecy, it says, V'cherev lo savor when you follow in Hashem's ways, when you're doing what Hashem wants from you, a sword shall not pass through your land. No sword shall be passed through. Not, not a sword uh, that's fighting against you, nor one that's fighting against anybody else. So Yoshiao reasons that their tshuva campaign has been so successful that no sword is going to be able to come through. And he's so certain of this that he goes out against the advice of Yirmiyahu. He goes out to confront Paro Necho and his expeditionary forces to prevent them from traversing the land of Israel and to do battle with, uh, to do battle with Assyria. So enter the Psukim and the downfall of Yoshiao HaMelech. Yoshiao HaMelech in 609 BCE is killed by the army of Paro Necho at the Battle of Megiddo. This is the second Battle of Megiddo. There is a much earlier Battle of Megiddo which happens in the 15th century before the Common Era in antiquity. This is our Battle of Megiddo. And we're familiar with the kina. It's one of the kinas that we traditionally recite on that we traditionally recite on Tishabav. And it starts like this Vayikonin Yermiyahu al Yoshiahu. Yermiyahu laments Yoshiahu, King Josiah. Vayomru kolasarim vasarot bikino seem al Yoshiahu adhayom. And everybody until this very day our very day, until the, in our day and age, we all say this keynote, al it was given as an ordinance in Israel, and it's written in the kinos, it's written in the lamentations. And we're going to see. Here's the field. Uh, here are the plains of Megiddo. Um, this is in the Amic, the Jezreel Valley. And uh, you are probably familiar with Har Tavor, uh, anybody ever been to, there's a winery there, um, Hartavor, and part of this is that, um, is that there's these flatlands and there's a high mountain, um, and this is basically where it is in the land of Israel. Here's Paro moving from Mitzrayim, here's the kingdom of Yehuda, here's Aza. Yerushalayim, Gaza, and they want to pass through the coastal plains to Megiddo in order to make their way up to eventually do battle with the kings of Assyria. Yoshiao HaMelech, convinced of his tshuva campaign, swings out to cut off their approach in Megiddo, in this valley of Megiddo. And it says that what happened was is that as he reached the battlefield, 
as he reached the battlefield, Yoshio HaMelech, who was being told by Yirmiyahu that it will not be successful, that you may not go, that you may not proceed any further, that it's not as good as you think, that the Tshuva campaign has not been successful as you think it is. So he essentially disregards Yirmiyahu HaNavi's advice, and yet Yirmiyahu HaNavi follows him, right? You can imagine ourselves uh, dedicating our lives to something in a a certain tragic sense. We dedicate our lives to something, and we're so convinced of what it is, and that that thing is the thing that ruins us, even if it's a good thing. I think that's the story of Yoshiao HaMelech as well. He was so traumatized by the discovery of the Sefer Torah and the understanding of what what the future held for the Jewish people that he couldn't not do anything. And yet... He was so convinced, I think, if I could add my own interpretation of it, why would Yoshiao HaMelech go? He's a righteous king. Because if Yoshiao HaMelech doesn't go, if Yoshiao HaMelech is wrong, if Yoshiao HaMelech is mistaken, and that idolatry is still as pernicious in the land of Israel as it was uh, before his campaign started, and that really he's only made so much of a dent and hasn't really been successful, so then the problems of the Jewish people are far greater than the death of Yoshio HaMelech when trying to head off the armies of Paranachal. I'll say that in a different way. Yoshio HaMelech is a person, is a king who's so dedicated, who's so completely given over to his people that he undergoes this campaign of tshuva and cleaning out the land from the idolatry and he thinks that he succeeded to the extent that that a sword will not pass through. And he's so convinced of it that he acts upon it. He acts to go head off a, the, a battle between the two great regional superpowers, Mitzrayim and Assyria. We're going to see another superpower is going to eventually loom greater than both of them. That's going to be Bavel. We're not quite there yet. But I, I think I think that, you know, first of all, we can... We can we can imagine the tragic genius, you know, the people whose, uh, the, the thing that they've put their life into is the thing that destroys them. Maybe the Chuva campaign of Yoshiao is the thing that ultimately destroyed him. I think furthermore, like I said before, and I'm just trying to articulate this idea well enough that it could be understood, is that why would Yoshiao Amel, who's righteous, simply disregard the approach of, 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 his, uh, of his Navi, who of Yirmiyahu, who's been so faithful to him? And also, why does Yirmiyahu follow him to the battlefield, even though he's been disregarded? I think it's because it's a righteous act. I think it's because he's reasoning to himself that if after all these years of reform, if after all these years of tshuva, if we still haven't gotten there, that means that something still terrible is meant to befall my people, and it has to be true. It has to be true enough that I can risk my life to prove that it's true or not. And that's what he does. He risks and loses his life. He's described in the Kinos that hundreds of arrows, uh, this King Yoshiao is standing at the front, if you can imagine, trying to head off the armies of Paro Necho, and Yermiao Anavi is behind him, and hundreds and hundreds of arrows pierce the body of Melech Yoshiao, of the righteous King Yoshiao HaMelech, who's killed on the battlefield. Vayikonin Yermiao al Yoshiao. And Yirmiyahu laments the death of this reformer, the death of this king. And the death of Yoshiao HaMelech is not just the lament for the death of Yoshiao, but it's, it's basically sealing the deal. If Yoshiao HaMelech couldn't succeed in this tshuva campaign, if we couldn't uproot idolatry, if, this, if the 
time and the setting and this message from God from the Bede Kabais was incorrect, then where are we headed towards? Yirmiyahu HaMelech knows. And Yirmiyahu HaMelech attunes his ears to the dying king. He attunes his ears to the dying king and he hears the dying king say, Yoshiho HaMelech says with his final breath, he says, Tzadiku Hashem kipihu merisi. Hashem is righteous because I'm the one that's gone against his ways. Such was a Belech, such was a king, such was a Melch Yehuda. Hayashav asas hayashav Hashem. He did that which was righteous in the eyes of God. Now this episode, this sad, terrible episode, is recorded for posterity in the keynote of Rabbi Lezer HaKalir, which we're going to end with tonight. Rav Lezer HaKamir says at the end, Saduhu, they hunted him. V'samuhu kematara lechitzim. They turned the king, Yoshio HaMelech, they turned him into a, uh, into a bullseye for arrows, a target of arrows. V'yizruku bo shlosh meos chitzim. 300 arrows hit him. Kalim hitu acharav ezun matzafihu. So we rushed after him of light foot to listen what would be the dying words of the king. And until his soul left, he was still focused on, on Hashem. He was focused on his mission. And the breath came out of his mouth and said, Hashem is righteous in all his ways. I am the one who has gone against him. That's from the Piyot of Rabbi Lazar Kalir from the 7th century. It's called Eicha Alai Koninu or Vayakonin Yermiyahu al Yoshiyahu Hamelech. We're going to begin next week uh, with with talking about the downfall and uh, and the notion, as we saw in Chazal, that Sefer Yermiyahu is Kula Churbana. The book is 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 Kula destruction. We're going to talk about the sons of uh, Melech Yoshiyahu, who eventually are the last kings of the Davidic dynasty. And, uh, and they come in quick succession. And we're going to talk about how we'll finish with uh, verse, um, verse 30 here. So his followers, his, uh, his attendants, took his body from the battlefield of Megiddo. They brought him to Jerusalem. So there's a nice sandwiching here. We saw that Yirmiya, we saw that Yoshiyahu Amalek was appointed by the Amharets, was appointed by popular uh, by popular demand, and now we see the Yoshiyahu Amalek. Uh, is being replaced with another king, with Yoachaz, who's being uh, replaced by popular demand, appointed by popular demand by the Am Haaretz. Although uh, we start to see that the geopolitics of the ancient Near East start to get a little bit more uh, difficult. Paranecho, the balance of power between Egypt, Assyria, and thereupon Babylonia starts to shift. And that's where Amir Tzashem we will pick up with next week. I want to thank everybody for coming to learn with us.